Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of WYMD Talks. My name is Anushka Vijaysinghar and I am a Hereford Youth Fellow at the World Movement for Democracy. In a democracy, governments derive their legitimacy from the consent of the governed. This consent is only meaningful, however, if it is informed. Disinformation distorts the ability of the people to make informed decisions and to give informed consent. It is a tool used to undermine democracy by delegitimizing the truth. My guests on these podcasts will emphasize the consequences of disinformation and will argue the imperative of preserving the truth in order to preserve the legitimacy of the democratic process. This is the first in a two-part series of podcasts on the subject. Part one will focus specifically on the role and responsibility of social media platforms and civil society actors in addressing the proliferation of disinformation, drawing from lessons learned in South and Southeast Asia. Joining me on this podcast are Cleve Aguelias from the Philippines and Risham Wasim from Pakistan. Cleve Aguelias is a PhD candidate at the Department of Political and Social Change of the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. His research focus is on challenges to democracy in Southeast Asia. Risham Wasim is a human rights activist and digital content creator based in Lahore, Pakistan. She is the creative director of Mati TV, Pakistan's first web-based interactive video platform, aimed at putting forward an alternative narrative of Pakistan in support of human rights and democracy and cultural diversity. She has also worked with the United Nations Human Rights Council as the communications strategist for the Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and Association. I will first turn to Cleve and then to Risham. Cleve, could you begin by giving us an idea of how disinformation campaigns have been used in the Philippines to shape political narratives um, how it manifests itself, and what have been some of the results. Mm-hmm. It has resulted to um, actual physical violence um, in the sense that the famous case of this information in the Philippines is none other than the case of the current Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, who uses an, an army of trolls and you know human, human trolls and even machine bots to sort of shape public conversations in support of his war on drugs. This war on drugs targets small-time peddlers and uh, users of illegal drugs in the country and are subjected to extrajudicial killings um, that are led by by the police. So what happens is that this war on drugs, this very brutal active and on-the-ground policy of uh, murdering um, individuals is complemented by this effort to shape conversations in social media to support that particular policy. So you see this kind of like complementary use of disinformation campaigns to actually result in real-world violence. And um, aside from this, uh, we've also seen, for example, that the disinformation campaign can also be used not only just to uh, support campaign of violence, but also to cause uh, public he- uh, harms to public health, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the disinformation cases about this is the use of, again, pro-government trolls and bots to undermine public health campaigns related to vaccination. So some of the pro-government actors have taken uh, a position against the use of vaccines in the case of dengue, which is a very common disease in the Philippines. 
And uh, just last year, uh, they started a campaign to undermine the public health campaign for the use of vaccine for this particular disease. And that resulted to actual real decline in the number of especially in poor families taking up uh, government vaccinations, which, of course, is um, leading to an outbreak in that uh, very preventable disease. That's actually very interesting. So is, it, is this in an attempt to target, as you mentioned, poorer communities? But could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Is it because, because it's the same community that is also targeted in, his, in Duterte's war on drugs? Or, or is it something else? I think the motivation is really uh, very partisan and because the context is that the, uh, this vaccine that was um, introduced by the government and rolled out as, a, as part of the government's public health campaign was done by the previous administration. Okay. So this is part of the broader strategy to discredit um, achievements and other programs associated with the previous administration. So what happens is that uh, at the expense of public health and the safety of these communities that would have benefited from vaccines uh, and other public health measures is that um, they have taken up this position just to score political points. And it's been very difficult um, to sort of counter this kind of disinformation campaigns because um, they usually target Facebook groups that are usually not very political in nature. Facebook groups uh, by overseas uh, Filipino workers, for example, Facebook groups for um, housewives just looking for, example, cooking recipes. So they target this not, you know, um, less politically inclined um, online groups and online conversations and actually uh, sort of seed anti-vaccine messages here, uh, leaving fake articles, uh, leaving fake news about the, the bad side effects of um, the uh, vaccines and uh, that's having an impact on the ground, especially in poor communities where they have uh, little access to other sources of information. This has become a cause of their withdrawal to participate from vaccination programs by health authorities. Mm-hmm. And is there evidence to suggest that this is a government-sponsored campaign or is it just people who've taken it upon themselves uh, who are not officially affiliated or linked to the state, mm-hmm. but just so maybe supporters? Well, it's actually a mixture of both. So uh, most of the time in social media, it's it's very hard to trace whether these actors are, uh, you know, can be identified uh, with, with the government, although it's very obvious that the uh, message and the strategies are very coordinated in the sense that they are using the same script, they are spreading the same fake news articles or uh, fake information. But also, um, one of the things that we've noted with this kind of campaign is that this was supported by government authorities. They, they've used mainstream media outlet to actually amplify this disinformation campaign in social media. Mm. So, for example, the head of the public attorney's office, uh, appointed by the president and identified as a very close ally of the president, was doing press conferences as well to to amplify the social media uh, disinformation campaign. So, you see that there's a clear identifiable link with this disinformation campaign and the government actors. Since you're a PhD candidate, Cleve, I was hoping you could elaborate maybe a little bit more on your research uh, and what your findings are, maybe give us a little bit of an introduction to what you've been working on. 
yes, me and my colleagues, we have been doing um, different research on um, disinformation in the Philippines and in Southeast Asia broadly. And one of the things that we're looking at is actually to look at this information from a media systems level. And by this, we actually mean that we would like to look at this information, not just from the usual focus on individual fake news peddlers, but to look at how some uh, media systems uh, are more vulnerable than others in terms of disinformation campaigns. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the things that we have uncovered in the course of doing this kinds of research is the role of uh, mainstream advertising and PR industries in the Philippines in uh, crafting and implementing disinformation campaigns. So the way that the global conversations are portraying these information campaigns is that sometimes we take it as, you know, very sort of like underground, uh, run secretly. But in the Philippines, mainstream ad and PR industries, you know, who would do corporate campaigns during the day are actually also running this digital disinformation campaigns on the side. So the kind of character of the disinformation campaign, we think it's very important to surface as well in the sense that what we're actually looking at and what we actually need to resolve are systemic issues, issues beyond just certain actors doing disinformation campaign, but rather that there are a variety of actors and institutions involved in these kinds of campaigns that benefit from it and um, that some uh, media systems are more vulnerable than others. We were also looking at, for example, how fake news or other kinds of disinformation campaigns travel from one platform to another. So it usually starts in social media, but it's also important to take note how mainstream media would cover it or would allow it to transfer to their platforms, especially that they have, you know, um, a larger reach. Mm -hmm. So, so these are some of the things that we're looking at in our research that we do. You mentioned something very interesting about how advertising companies have now come into the space and they would craft uh, these campaigns. Can you make a comparison like that to a situation anywhere else in the world that you've come across in your research? Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that we've learned as well is that the advertising and PR agencies based in the Philippines, um, which are mostly multinational in nature, mm -hmm. are also doing these kinds of campaigns in other countries, including the United States, for example. Okay. So you can really see that kind of transnational diffusion of these kinds of disinformation work. Mm -hmm. The strategies are shared and the way that it is done as well is that because labor is cheap and usually you know um, easy to exploit in countries like the philippines in in many countries in the global south then the human resource component the labor resource component of this disinformation campaigns even outside the philippines are usually done by filipinos as well so there's one final question for you. What do you think is the role of social media uh, platforms here? Do they have a responsibility? How much can they or should they be expected to do in a situation like this? I think they really have a very big play to role in terms of combating this information campaign, especially in their own platforms. Mm -hmm. We've seen an, an effort, an emerging effort on the part of social media platforms to regulate content uh, that they deem, you know, up not to standards of their community to, to their community standards. But of course, there's still much uh, that needs to be done. One of the things that um, we're looking at is the focus on process regulation rather than content regulation. 
content regulation is focused on targeting particular contents that they think are inauthentic, you know, a product of disinformation campaigns, a deliberate effort to harm others, etc. And one of the challenges in doing this is that these kinds of things are very context-dependent mm-hmm. um, and, you know, would always depend on what the local situation is. So, for example, there was a particular time when um, Facebook was taking down news about coronavirus just because it's being flagged by their community guidelines and by their uh, algorithm. But these are not necessarily fake news, but actually um, these are people sharing criticisms or dissent regarding the government's response. So the focus on content regulation, it's quite hard to implement, again, because of local context of disinformation campaigns. By being process-oriented, what we're looking at is that we think that social media platforms should be more proactive in creating committees or communities or something similar to that, comprising of different actors from civil society, the government, and the social media platforms to continuously come up with ways to combat fake news. And also, I think there's something to be said about these social media platforms is that they're driven, obviously, by their business model, which is that virality is a good thing. So anything that goes viral makes them a profit. So they don't really have any underlying motivation to stop that from happening, which I think is a very difficult thing to address and a difficult thing to challenge. Yes, um, you're very right about that. That's why we think that a media systems approach is really useful in the sense that when we look at social media, one of the things that distinguishes it from other media is that it's very dependent on virality and the market logic, the, the demand to be viral, to be profitable. And increasingly, other media platforms, for example, uh, the mainstream television, the mainstream broadcast platforms, are also becoming dependent on becoming on becoming viral because they're now subjected to market forces as well. And this is what makes them vulnerable to disinformation campaigns as well, just like how social media platforms are more vulnerable. When we look at media systems, we refrain from just identifying sources of fake news and shaming them and then removing them from the platforms without challenging the actual system, the actual media system that relies on market logic, that relies on profitability. So the aim of our research is to actually broaden that conversation from just focus on partisan actors who are doing this disinformation campaigns. We think that's very important conversation that we're having as well. But we also need to focus on a systemic level that there are institutional incentives that makes our media systems vulnerable to disinformation. Thanks so much, Cleve, for your intervention. We'll move on to Risham now. Uh, Risham, it's my understanding that in Pakistan, disinformation operates very similarly to the way it operates in Sri Lanka, where I'm from, where these campaigns are perpetrated primarily by hardline majoritarian groups who want to sort of maintain this majoritarian status quo. So their targets are mainly minorities and any sort of progressive social movements. So could you begin by contextualizing disinformation as a phenomenon in Pakistan and elaborating on how these campaigns work? 
disinformation is being used to shape a number of very crucial debates regarding Pakistan's political and cultural future. Mostly it is used to produce hate and like a very extremist worldview of the citizens and which serves the purpose of certain institutions. We kind of got to see the full extent of disinformation during election periods. That's where it happens the most because it is this very political intentions behind it. And it is very much used to discredit certain politicians that are not serving the purpose of certain non-state actors. And the argument here isn't that they are, you know, good for the country or bad for the country. It's just that the decision isn't really left up to the citizens because there's just so much manipulation of information out there that uh, it hinders the democratic process greatly in the country. And other than that, one really major use of disinformation is discrediting and villainizing any kind of progressive movement in Pakistan, particularly the women's movement, particularly any movement that has anything to do with greater you know, democratic freedoms of the people, particularly the youth of the country. And in the very recent past, we have seen that whenever anything is happening in the country that tries to challenge the, the status quo. There are so many campaigns which are in Pakistan, it's not just limited to social media. We have disinformation very much prevalent in the mainstream media, so much so that well-known anchors are going to say something which is not really mm-hmm. verified. And it's been proven that it's not true. And yet they stick to it so much so that they have to go to court. So it's, it's a very ridiculous situation mm-hmm. uh, at times. In your opinion, in, in, in the work that you do, how have you seen maybe in recent times democracy in Pakistan regress as a result of disinformation? Could you give a few give us a few more examples? There are so many examples, but I'll give you like a few. For example, the most recent one, which happened in March, uh, there was, you know, on 8th March, there's the Women's March in Pakistan. For the past three years, there's this thing that's been happening, which is called the Aurat March. Aurat is basically mm-hmm. women in Urdu, so it's the yeah. Women's March. But it has gotten a lot of criticism from the uh, more conservative or extremist groups, and it's become highly controversial. And so because of that reason, a lot of uh, fake accounts and trolls and a lot of effort is used to basically take what the women's movement in Pakistan is about and twist it around to make it seem like this is something which is unconstitutional, which is un-Islamic, particularly un-Islamic, because mm-hmm. Pakistan is such an, it's a country which has had an ex- a past of being in extremes when it comes to religion. So religion is something that is very quickly used to discredit anything. And because of that reason, it's also very, very scary. Because when it comes to religion, people are very emotional and so much of disinformation is playing on people's emotion, making them scared of something or making them angry at something. And we saw that happen during this march so much so that the one that happened in our capital was met with an extremist group doing a counter march because they thought that what these women was doing, what these women and men were doing was against the teachings of the, of the religion that mm-hmm. the country has. It became violent. Thank God there was security force that were provided by the government, but it it was bad. So that's like a very real manifestation of what happens, how disinformation is used. And if we talk about using disinformation for political purposes, anything can be used to discredit a politician. Anything. For example, we recent, not recently, a few years ago, there was this very 
very traumatic molestation case of a young seven-year-old girl who was abducted and she was raped. And then apparently lots of other cases were linked in that particular city. And when they finally found the man who did it, like an anchor person in a mainstream news channel uh, linked it to the previous government, uh, the mm. opposition government of that time, which was completely false. But a lot of people still believed it because it was all over social media. And obviously, like a famous anchor person is saying this to you. And obviously, these campaigns were probably very successful in when they prop up in and around elections. Exactly, exactly. They're a lot more successful when it's happening around elections because A, obviously it's the elections. People are generally a bit more emotional. Emotional. Um, And I do think that disinformation is something so emotional. It's so linked to like human psyche and how we behave and how we act. And and I think Pakistan is the perfect breeding ground for successful disinformation campaigns Mm -hmm. because we haven't really been taught a lot of critical thinking from the get-go. There isn't a lot of media literacy. There isn't even a lot of, you know, freedom of the press essentially and there's so much intolerance that has been taught from school like the curriculum is very intolerant Mm -hmm. so what happens is that it's like the perfect breeding ground for something that might not be true that doesn't make sense but since you aren't really literate towards how social media works generally you you tend to believe it and since you're not taught critical thinking you don't Mm -hmm. think that oh maybe I should challenge this and just because I agree with it doesn't mean it necessarily has to be true we're taking disinformation as being a bad thing as a given in this situation. Mm-hmm. But can you just maybe share a few thoughts on why it is so fundamentally bad for democracy as an institution, how it erodes democracy, and why it is so important to tackle it? So I think what disinformation does essentially is it creates a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. and it starts a lot of information out there. The point of media, whether it be mainstream media or even to some extent social media, is to essentially inform your viewer, inform Mm -hmm. your citizen. Mm -hmm. And when that information is so flawed, A, you're just creating a lot of misinformation out there and you're creating a lot of confusion out there. Mm -hmm. So you are not creating an informed citizen and that's exactly what you need for a democracy to work. informed citizen who's well aware of their rights and well aware of what's happening in the country and I feel like disinformation doesn't let that happen a lot in the country because people have very different views about the same topic and none of them are really based on any facts and that's another thing it creates a lot of intolerance people aren't really willing to sit down and listen to another person's point of view which is again another essential element of democracy that you're supposed to do that and that doesn't just mean in the National Assembly it means like in your house in your school in your university. More specifically, I feel like in Pakistan, it is used a lot to discredit politicians. And the argument isn't that the politician that is being discredited is good or not. That's so subjective. It depends on what your needs are. It's just that you'll never get to decide for yourself. Someone else is designing this entire campaign to color your vision of entire democratic process. And in Pakistan, particularly, politicians generally across the board have a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. politicians are corrupt mm-hmm. democracy does not work in Pakistan it is not of our culture it has not given us anything these are the misinformation that we have about democracy and that has existed since the beginning of the country in a way almost mm-hmm. but since a lot of young people consume social media mm-hmm. and Pakistan has a very young population 65% of our population is youth mm-hmm. so come election time you're basically telling all these young people that democracy isn't for you then moving on, Isham, to your work, 
because you're a civil society mm-hmm. activist and your work is based mostly on activism and um, building public awareness how do you mm-hmm. think civil society in pakistan but also the world over needs to intervene into this space what is their role what yeah. is their responsibility first of all maybe comment on some successes that you have had as part of pakistan civil society or you or others in tackling this phenomenon and then move on to maybe talking about what you think could be potentially sort of creative more out of the box interventions in this space so it's kind of uh, hard to kind of pinpoint a particular success and also just to like clarify i'm not someone who specifically works on disinformation mm-hmm. i'm someone who generally works on creating like a more um critical media uh, yes. objective media and obviously it kind of plays into like i'm i'm trying to play a more holistic i'm play i'm trying to play my part essentially yeah. you know yeah. by trying to create interesting media content which isn't sensational that's like a long thing it's not something that's going to give me a very tangible uh, mm-hmm. success very soon it's something that's going to yeah, keep happening course. for years and years and years that i'm going to really like you know build a culture and uh, so that's basically where my work lies mm-hmm. but i do think that a lot of our strength also lies in the fact that we are a very young country like i mentioned uh, so 64 or 65% of pakistan's population is under the age of 30 mm-hmm. that's very young and these people have been exposed to the internet for a very long time uh, and they are aware of what's happening around the world as well but these people are a bit more internet savvy than their parents are mm-hmm. so that does kind of give us hope that you know as we, uh, we move along things are going to be a little better and so there has been movements like i mentioned you know the women's movement and the students movement so there are people trying to kind of you know challenge this and they do recognize it a little bit more and there are organizations that are working on media literacy particularly because when it comes to social media sites that is somewhere where pakistan particularly is powerless because we're like the underdog i mean when facebook and when google they make their algorithms they don't think about you know countries like us in so many ways so that's something we feel powerless towards but then the state tries to make a lot of cyber laws it's a double edged sword honestly because it's a way to control anyone who is critical of the government so we do have organizations now and we do have people now who are aware ki, oh wait they're trying to curtail our digital rights and that's something that you know we need to like care about so a lot of young people might not care about a lot of other things but when it comes to their digital rights because that's the medium they operate in that's their mm. window into the world they are a bit more sensitive and they do listen oh what is the new law that's happening what are they trying to do here how is my life as a content creator going to change or as a content consumer going to change so because of the fact that we have a younger population who operate online and are much more internet savvy they, they link it with their digital rights so a lot of organizations try to work on that and digital literacy particularly uh and then another interesting thing which i don't think anyone else would think is a success but i think it's a success in a weird way is that uh, as we've grown older as we've grown bigger uh, we also to agitate a lot of people so mm-hmm. while we have a lot of positive comments and people would know us we'll also have a lot of trolls a lot more than we used to before mm-hmm. and i see it as a success in the sense that you know it's bothering them yes that we're making an impact if there's a, a narrative out there which 
uh, is a narrative that isn't really something that certain institutions are in favor of. Mm-hmm. They'll have their troll army. They'll have their people on Twitter and on Facebook that will discredit your page, that will tell you that you guys are like spies and you guys are anti-Pakistani and you're not Muslim. And if you're a woman in media, a lot of rape threats, a lot of disgusting things. That's what happened with the women's movement as well. The trolling has increased because the support has also increased. You know, so it's like almost a dying breath of extremism in a way because they didn't care about a small web channel, but now they do. So, I mean, I would consider that a success too in my, yeah, so that's how I choose to look at it for my own sanity. (laughs) So just as a final remark, Arisham, could you just leave with our listeners? why it is important that we preserve and protect this democratic space from the influences of disinformation campaigns and why there is so much of value to the truth that we need to preserve. Because I've found that in a lot of conversations I've had and a lot of readings I've done, that disinformation tends to trigger a very emotional response in people, a very emotive response that the truth for some reason, doesn't seem to do it in the same way. Which is also what I think contributes to the virality of it. Mm-hmm. So can you just maybe, as part of your closing remarks, just say something about you know, the value of the truth and why yeah. this is something that, especially young people, need yeah. to preserve? I feel like the problem that we face is that we don't really want the truth, I feel sometimes, because if the truth doesn't benefit me, if the truth doesn't already tell me that, oh, what you're thinking is correct, then I feel like, oh, that's not my truth, right? That's the kind of day and age we live in where it's not the truth, it's my truth. And that's what we're kind of facing everywhere else. I think what we need to address is not just the fact that that we are very confused about the truth, but our own tolerance to hear it. I think in a way, the problem is so much more deep rooted. I feel like we need to kind of understand that we can be wrong Mm. and things can be more than they seem. And we can have a discourse. We can have a critical discourse. We can talk to people. We can talk to people who don't think like us because that is democracy in the essence of it. Because I honestly look at democracy as a culture almost. And for me, it's the culture of just being tolerant towards one another and trying to come up with solutions together, being mindful of each other's you know opinions and spaces mm-hmm. Cleve do you have anything to add to that or anything to add to what Risham said in general yeah I just wanted to take off from um, Risham's comments on what can we actually do to mm-hmm. combat disinformation and to specifically for example inviting shoal armies it's very true that countries like you know the Philippines and Pakistan are quite you know small countries compared to big western countries and we're less likely to influence um, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. But it's also important to note that uh, most of their users are in countries like ours. And we're actually, uh, you know, the users that makes their platform profitable. And I think it's high time to use that kind of leverage um, to these big social media platforms to make them accountable, to make them take their role seriously in shaping public conversation, especially in countries like the Philippines and Pakistan where um, democracy and human rights norms are being challenged. And I also think that um, so in the Philippines, we are trying to campaign for changes in how they regulate, for example, election campaigns. 
So we're campaigning for the local authorities to actually consider reshaping um, campaign rules to impose, for example, public disclosures of paid digital campaigns. So mm-hmm. much of the, the work that we're trying to push is that these institutions um, will force politicians and all other actors who are into digital campaigns to be more transparent about the nature of their digital campaigns. But we also know that pushing laws or regulations may not necessarily be the best way to combat disinformation campaigns because Mm -hmm. this might be used by state authorities to actually clamp down on their opposition, on Mm -hmm. activists, especially civil society. So we're also looking at the side of having the PR and advertising agencies to self-regulate themselves Uh, maybe it's also time for uh, civil society and the larger public community to pressure these kinds of organizations to develop their code of ethics or, you know, shared ethical conducts uh, on the limits of how they should run um, public campaigns. And with the point that I think um, it's, it's very much true that this information is a complex phenomenon and it's quite overwhelming that there's so much to be done. But there are also things that we can do right now um, so that we can advance our goal of creating our broader efforts to develop uh, norms and institutions that can cultivate democracy and human rights principles in countries like um, the Philippines. Thank you both so much for your valuable insights and for your contribution to this podcast. As both Cleve and Risham mentioned in their interventions, the mainstream media has become increasingly complicit in the propagation of disinformation around the world. In part two of this series, we will be taking a closer look at how mainstream media operates in this space and the role they play in both propagating and curbing the spread of disinformation.